Welcome back once again to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Today we're going to talk about cardiac pacing. Cardiac pacing comes in a variety of flavours in critical care, but a reasonable list of class 1 indications for permanent pacing might include uh, firstly second or third degree block with symptoms in bradycardia, maybe with pauses, or in people with neuromuscular disease who are a bunch of patients oddly prone to collapse of the conduction system. Secondly, think about sinus node dysfunction and bradycardia um, in people with symptoms. Sinus node dysfunction here, meaning that the SA node has either temporarily or permanently gone AWOL, leaving the bundle of hiss or ventricles to keep things ticking along in some form of escape rhythm. A third indication might be recurrent syncope due to carotid stimulation, e.g. necktie syncope or shaving syncope, which are really interesting things in themselves. And fourthly, pause-dependent ventricular tachycardia, which seems to be a very rare beast that is a form of torsade. So from the emergency department context, we see the syncopal patient um, with heart block that might come in with either an acute MI or perhaps more commonly in an older patient with a degenerative conducting system that either presents in complete heart block or develops intermittent pauses as part of sinus node dysfunction. Commonly in the intensive care unit, we're presented with a patient with intermittent pauses, perhaps from autonomic involvement of something like Guillain-Barre syndrome or as a complication of infective endocarditis with an aortic root abscess. In these scenarios, we're often used, forced to use a short period of external pacing, which while occasionally life-saving, is aesthetically very unsatisfying as we inevitably end up watching someone's pectoral muscles twitching away for hours and end while cardiology gets things together to actually put a wire in. So the majority of these patients, as mentioned, will end up with some form of emergent invasive pacing from cardiology. And it is rare from the emergency physician, it's rare for the emergency physician or intensive care physician to place these in Irish practice. The pacing wires here are typically placed via an introducer sheath in one of the central veins. They have little balloons in the end that allow them to be floated along in the stream of returning blood to the heart. Once in the heart, the idea is to get the tip to make sustained contact with the deep recesses of the right ventricle, allowing systole to be triggered from the RV. The ECG waveform is therefore an LBB pattern, as it looks like the left bundle really isn't doing its job. Perhaps the most common form of pacing that you'll see uh, will be in the cardiac intensive care unit where we often receive patients from operating theatre with epicardial wires and a pacing box hanging from the drip stand. A passing familiarity with your unit's box of tricks is well worth it, especially simple things like how to unlock it and change the settings, which is by no means obvious, especially when the patient is asystolic and unlocking said box is a critical part of their ongoing management. The epicardial wires are slender little things that are generally very poorly visible on chest x-ray and tend to only last 5-10 to days before either dislodging or malfunctioning. Um, An important note to make would be that these can be a troublesome cause of cardiac tamponade upon removal in the coagulopathic patient. There is a strange little secret code used to describe the type of pacing being delivered and its existence seems to be primarily to confuse novices like myself. Okay, so let's go through some of this little um, code that you'll see. There are five described positions used in pacing, but in reality, we just need to know three of them. And when I say positions, I mean where the letter comes and in what order, and we're just going to talk about the, the three letters. So the first letter you'll look at will describe what chamber is being paced, and that'll either be the atria, A, it'll be the ventricle, V, or it'll be both, which is described as D or dual. The second position, the second letter you're going to see, will describe the chamber being sensed, and that'll be A for Atria, V for ventricle, D for both, for dual, uh, or O when there's no sensing involved. 
And the third position you're going to look at is the pacemaker response to a sensed beat. And if there's an I there, that means it's going to inhibit. If there's a T, it's going to be triggered. Um, if there's a D, it means dual, where both inhibition and triggered responses can be happening, depend on, on where it was sensed. And finally, you can have an O again, meaning nothing. Let's give an example that probably makes it more clear. So, for example, in VVI pacing, the chamber paced is the ventricle, the chamber sensed is the ventricle, and the response to a sensed native beat is to inhibit the pacer. This is a good example to use as it covers about 99% of what cardiac surgery patients end up on in the ICU. It is primarily used as a backup mode for a conduction system too stoned in fentanyl, propofol and hypothermia to grace the recently traumatised heart with its presence. The main downside of VVI is loss of AV synchrony, which means no atrial kick and perhaps a worse cardiac output. And as a result, you'll often see VVI set to a bit of a higher rate than you might do otherwise, just to ensure the cardiac output is okay. DDD is also commonly used, especially in AVR or MVR surgery, where loss of the native rhythm is fairly common. The dual leads in both the atrium and the ventricle, and the dual pacing and sensing gives a better cardiac output as AV synchrony can be restored. In other words, you get your atrial kickback. Okay, thanks again for listening, and I'll speak to you later on. Bye.